Welcome and thank you today for coming to this CHEST webinar uh, related to COVID-19 disease in children. Uh, we're excited today. We've got a distinguished panel of uh, three members and we are looking forward to learning a bit more about how COVID-19 has impacted children both directly and indirectly, as well as learning a little bit more about the clinical characteristics, manners in which you can diagnose uh, the two different entities between acute COVID and MISC as well as further delineating some of the immunologic understanding of the disease in children, and then perhaps positing different hypotheses of why children may have be affected differently than adults and how this may be impacted by different mutated strains as we move forward through this pandemic. So before uh, I move forward, I just wanted to introduce myself. I'm Dr. Ken Remy. I'm at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm an adult and pediatric physician scientist uh, at this university. Uh, next up, I'd like to introduce Dr. Janine Zicheng. Hi, uh, I'm Janine Zicheng. I am a peds intensivist, recently turned uh, primary care pediatrician, and um, it's uh, based in Indiana. Very nice to meet y'all. Next up, we'll I'll have Dr. Yanka Bullitt uh, introduce herself. Uh, hello, um, my name is Yanka Bullitt, uh, and I'm a pediatric intensivist. Uh, at uh, UCLA Mattel Children's uh, Hospital uh, and with the primary interest with the iron and iron biology and uh, uh, infection. Uh, but of course, uh, now the spotlight is on COVID. Today we'll talk about the COVID and of course the MISD. Thank you. And then finally, Dr. Adrian Randolph will introduce herself. Thank you. I'm Adrian Randolph. I'm a pediatric critical care physician um, at Boston Children's Hospital and a professor at Harvard uh, Medical School in Anesthesia and Pediatrics. And I lead the Overcoming COVID-19 Investigators um, Network that it includes about six, over 60 hospitals across the United States studying severe complications of COVID-19, including um, acute COVID-19 and multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children and adolescents. Um, and in centers in the United States. And we have two big studies going that include um, a huge registry um, of over 2,000 patients, as well as an immunobiology study that's involved over 500 patients. And that's where I um, am able to answer questions related to um, any complications in children and adolescents. Thank you, Dr. Ray. We're most also appreciative of Dr. Christopher Carroll, who's uh, uh, not with us today, but uh, he was able to put forth this panel, which I think he did a phenomenal job of putting together a very unique panel of uh, experts within uh, COVID disease and how it relates specifically to children. So for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, our hope is that we're going to tackle a number of different areas. The first area I'd like to talk about would be the impact of acute COVID directly with children and on children, as well as indirect consequences of disease. And as we move away from acute COVID disease, we'll next uh, move into further understanding of multi-inflammatory syndrome or MISC in children, um, and then further understand and delineate those immunologic consequences as mentioned. Before we begin, um, what I will tell you is in your current chat box, if you've got additional questions, um, I will be looking at that chat box throughout the uh, talks by each of our panel members as I ask them specific questions. And we will take those questions and add them in towards the end. Additionally, there were a number of questions that have been submitted and we've attempted where possible to try to integrate those into the questions for the panel already. So without further ado, I'm only gonna speak for a few moments just to just uh, bring forth just an understanding for the group of some of the epi data related to COVID disease. And when we look at COVID with the early data from the beginning from MMWR from June of this past year, children do get COVID-19 disease. And I know that this is, you know, it's not surprising to everyone on, on this webinar today. Um, however, the numbers originally and where we sit today um, have slightly grown from the original data that demonstrated that 1% of the cases in the Netherlands and 2% from a large observational cohort in the UK were children under the age of 18. Um, additionally, back in April of 2020, 1.7% of all confirmed cases of COVID uh, were less than 18 years of age. Furthermore, 90% of those cases were acquired uh, from household exposures with about a 4.7% secondary household attack rate in China 
and about a 27% increase uh, attack rate, if you will, from household exposures in New York. Uh, in the United States at that time, about 5% of all cases in children were less than 18. And if you look at the epi data back then, very few cases across the entire cohort of United States individuals with SARS-CoV-2 uh, infection uh, were children. Additionally, and fortunately, and much of this has remained, if you look at the first wave of COVID, many of the deaths fortunately were not in the young children age of between under one year, as well as one to four and five to 14 years. This just came out in, uh, in uh, the CDC over the past uh, few months. And what you're looking at here is the risk for COVID-19 infection, hospitalizations and death by age group. And the reference group is that five to 17 years of age. And you're looking at change in risk specifically from zero to four years, as well as the adult counterparts of greater than 18. Now this is for acute COVID. And as you can see here, <clears throat> the zero to four year old patients I have a two times like, higher likelihood than the reference group for being hospitalized and a similar one time uh, uh, compared to the reference group for, for mortality. And you can see logarithmically how this uh, will increase as uh, people age. So what are the numbers as of April 22nd, uh, 2021? So we've seen a little under 4 million total children with COVID-19 cases reported. And this represents about 13.7% of all cases with an overall rate of a little under 5,000 cases per 100,000 children in the population in the United States. When you look over the past few weeks in change in number of cases, um, 79,800 new child cases were reported from April 15th through the 22nd, and this represented about 21% of the new weekly cases. Additionally, when looking at testing, children made up approximately 6 to 19% of all total state tests, with about 5 to 30% of those children that were tested testing positive. And then finally, with mortality, children still remain fortunately with a mortality less than 0.19% of all COVID-19 deaths, and 10 states are currently reporting zero child deaths. This is at least fortunate um, as uh, children seemingly don't have the same level of severity of illness as their adult counterparts. So in this, I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Zicheng and Dr. Rand uh, Randolph uh, a few questions. Would you mind commenting on how children have been impacted directly from COVID disease? And then the second follow-up question will be indirectly and then we'll get into the specifics of the disease as far as clinical characteristics of the disease in children. Thank you. Either person can take that first. Janine, you wanna go ahead? Or... I can. Yeah, so. Sorry, um, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so um, we actually, uh, so I'd like to acknowledge, first of all, Dr. Um, Dr. Carroll has not, uh, has not joined us today. Um, and we sort of uh, put together about a year ago, a, a project to look at the indirect effects of the pandemic on children. And um, we used the virtual pediatric systems database. So uh, shout out to them. Um, that's a big database uh, that is dedicated to uh, standardized um, outcome data sharing among PICU. So we looked at um, 160,000 children who were admitted to 77 PICUs across the country in the first two quarters um, of 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020. Grouped the 27 and 2019 data together um, to compare it um, with, and we used a weighted average for those data for, um, for those first three years and um, looked at those in uh, terms of admissions by diagnosis, um, uh, to the pediatric ICU. I'm going to share my screen here and show you kind of what we came up with in terms of indirect um, admissions. Now, that first quarter is what we'll look at first. And again, this is uh, January through March of 2019. First, 2017 through 2019 is the light gray there, and 2020 is the dark gray. So as you can see, um, between... Uh, quarter one and, uh, of 2017-2019 and quarter uh, one of 2020, there was not too much of a decrease in PICU admissions. Um, frequency of admissions differed significantly um, in only five diagnoses there. Um, and so 
that was, you know, kind of in March was when um, states started implementing mask mandates and there were school closures. Um, people were starting to physically distance and um, things were beginning to shut down. And so as we're moving towards from the end of quarter one, which I'm showing here to um, quarter two, if I can advance here. So this is looking at quarter two. And again, the light gray is 27 to 2019 and the dark gray is 2020. And you can see pretty significant decreases in the 2020 uh, quarter two in um, a number of uh, different diagnoses. We're looking at you know, particularly respiratory illnesses. So um, asthma was 6.6% of patients in the 27-2019 block down to 1.8% of patients in 2020. Um, bronchiolitis went from 6.5% down to 0.9%, pretty significant um, decrease. Pneumonia, influenza, um, respiratory failure, and arrest all had um, decreases. Um, there were some um, interesting increases as well. Um, so increasing in some uh, in brain trauma and in general trauma, and then diagnoses that had significant increases in both um, frequency and in the raw numbers. So when we you can look at those, those actual number of admissions, um, diabetes was uh, a big jump from 5.1% to 9.4%. Uh, poisonings and ingestions went from 4.3 to 6.9%. Um, so, you know, we know that um, with all of these changes that, that came at a societal level, you know, we know that there were decreased levels of vaccinations, decreased visits to emergency departments, decreased primary care visits. And um, so it was just a, interesting to see how all that played out in terms of uh, uh, it, admissions to um, the PICU. Um, additionally, um, when we had, when we looked at all those numbers, um, we put together a, um, multivariate logistic regression model for factors that are associated with mortality. Um, so PIM2, um, pediatric index of mortality, mortality to age, race, um, medical versus surgical schedule and scheduled versus unscheduled. Um, so mortality was not associated with the study year in, um, in if we looked at quarter one data, but going to quarter two. Um, so this was the, the, the thing that, you know, obviously we don't have enough information to really explain it um, fully, but the, the odds ratio for mortality in um, COVID-19 quarter two was 1.17 um, compared with uh, pre-COVID-19 quarter two. So the 27 to 2019 block. And, you know, we know that all the hospital systems were very strained. Um, healthcare workers were stressed out. We we're not in a lot of cases able to go into patient rooms as frequently as we would have liked to because of, uh, you know, the risk of transmission. Um, and then the other interesting thing that uh, we noted when we, when we ran this model, and um, I think there was a, a question that had been submitted um, about race and ethnicity um, in COVID was that uh, when we, when we looked at the model, non-white children and neonates had increased odds of um, mortality. So we've got some pretty pretty interesting numbers from a pretty big data set, and obviously we can't answer all the questions that we'd like to about what what exactly caused that. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was what we what we came up with for that study. So, Dr. Randolph, uh, I'm gonna pass it over to you. Yes. So um, I think that uh, you know, as far as are children really at risk and more severe. First of all, children have always done better for with sepsis and ARDS and everything else, right? And but you know, we started tracking deaths in influenza um, when we had an up year in 2003, where 300 and something children died, um, and then we started tracking deaths from influenza, and that was a lot. No, we don't have thousands and thousands because you wouldn't expect that, and that would be really shocking. But as more and more and more of these adult or elderly adults are vaccinated, um, you're going to get let, you know, I mean, though the, the death rate there is 30% or higher, you know, we don't have that, you know, we don't have a, if they get into the ICU with flu um, in a bad year, our mortality rate would be 8%, you know, in a bad, bad year, you know with a vaccine mismatch or something or bacterial co-infection. But despite that, you know, 
our, I just want to bring us back to what is usually be aside from the pandemic things that we are concerned about is hospitalizations, right? Um, Lung disease in children early in life, which we know has long-term sequelae, neurologic um, impacts in uh, early in life um, that can have long-term sequelae. And if you look at the numbers, um, children aren't completely spared. And as we get more and more um, into the fact that they're probably going to be one of the only major populations left completely unprotected. And the um, variants are change are of concern in the virus as it mutates is affecting younger people. We have now left a population of uh, our youngest uh, individuals completely unprotected if something um, changes and it gets more severe, which it does seem to be doing in some countries and Michigan and other places affecting younger people, right? So um, people like, you know, so I think that, you know, people like, you know, my mother got COVID, thank goodness she did okay at age 82 because I was really scared for her knowing all the data that she had one in three chance of everything going wrong. You wouldn't expect that in a child, but as all these other people get protected with vaccination, they, um, you, you just left a completely vulnerable population. Plus the fact that Miss C seems to be occurring mainly in, in these younger patients, although there is some Miss A, who knows what, you know, but um, we have this post-infectious complication. So, I mean, I think that um, just getting back to be pre-pandemic when we weren't just our heads swirling with, you know, half a million people dying um, and we were just dealing with um, hospitalizations and our usual outcomes and everything else, I think we're going to get back to that. And then we're going to be dealing with who's at risk, how do we prevent it, da-da-da, and the fact that we never got any treatment trials, zero zero in children. We're using it though. I can tell you from data that I have in about, in, if they're in the ICU over half get some COVID targeted treatment based on adult data. We never did any of our own studies. We're talking remdesivir, steroids, whatever. Um, we ne never did any of our own studies, right? So, and we didn't have the numbers to do our, our own studies, right? So we're extrapolating. We don't know if it works. And then um, the same with vaccines. We're going to be stuck with case control studies. Right? Well, you know, we're not necessarily going to get do big trials. We're going to probably implement and do um, case control. You know, do we have a little bit of a trial in the 12 to 15, but it's small. And because the incidence is small. And then we're going to do um, do test negative control studies, which we were just funded for with the overcoming COVID with with a bunch of money from CDC to do a, a big test negative control. So I'm not saying negative. I, I think it's good that we're doing something, but it's just because our incidents are low and to prove does it work or not work and protect. So anyways, I'm just saying that that. In a usual year, you would still be concerned about a lot of these um, complications and, and, you know, issues. And, and it's just that you get so bombarded with the, and luckily that's going away. Thank goodness that, that we've, we've gotten control over the death rate and everything in the, in the older people and most, and many of them are vaccinated and um, protected, but now we have left a completely unprotected population if the virus mutates, we have left all of the children unprotected. And, and to kind of um, go off of that, Dr. Randolph, you know, because when with our data, when we were looking at those decreased um, PICU admissions, you know, decreased by 30% in, in quarter two, and that was when all of the, our safety, our, our 
we're on all, all on high alert and everybody was wearing their masks and things were shut down. And now as all of these groups get vaccinated and we're peeling back those layers of safety, you know, those two combined effects, possibility of mutation and the addition, you know, and this feeling of security that we're going back to society and reopening and, and people are traveling again, you know, then, then what are the consequences of that? I think these are excellent questions. And so um, in relationship to this, and I think the mutation one is very interesting specifically because a lot of the data that we have is from D614G and it's not necessarily with the B117 or the P.1 strain um, mutations. Although there is obviously data in the last two or three months as far as infectivity and transmission among children. What I'd like to understand, so I've personally taken care of about 2,200 adults with COVID thus far, but I've only taken care of about 23 children that have had COVID in the intensive care unit, at least acute COVID, not MISC per se. Um, <laughs> from your clinical experiences, um, are there differences in the presentation um, for the children that you've taken care of? Are they different than what we would normally see with some of the adults that come in with dyspnea, that have certainly hypoxemia, that have uh, altered mental status um, and have uh, GI upset or nausea, vomiting, uh, plus or minus fever? Are those symptoms for acute COVID anything different for children than at least what I've experienced in adults? Um, I think that, um, yes, there are some differences depending on age um, in, my, in our registry. Um, and I can share that because we're now looking at the infants a little bit more intensively. Um, so, um, the teenagers seem very similar in what I see to the adults, um, comorbid conditions, even diabetes, obesity, a lot of patients over 30 um, BMI, 40 BMI, um, a lot of um, risk, risk factors that were, were high, highlighted in the adult populations, um, sure. chronic lung disease, chronic neurologic disease as well as to why they get in the ICU. Um, but then there's this other huge peak in the infant population um, that is more like, you know, when you think about, think about RSV bronchiolitis, if you're pediatric, you know, what do you think about what gets you in the hospital with RSV bronchiolitis in the ICU, et cetera. It's a totally different thing. Most more previously healthy kids, younger, um, you know, under one year of age needing oxygen and other things, um, neurologic complications, lung complications, other things that, you know, they're definitely concerning. And we know that, that in RSV, those ones that get lung disease can often, half of them become asthmatic later on, you know, whether it's related to RSV or just they're picking out people who are predisposed to asthma, whatever, um, but clearly it's a different phenotype, maybe more similar to our other infant phenotypes of who ends up in the ICU infant with um, lung disease or neurologic disease or other things. Um, it's clearly, um, there's clearly a peak there. So I do think that there's, um, there, there are some epidemiologic signals and I don't know what the long-term sequelae are. I do know that there of these kids that come in with the lung disease that, that seem to have not such a bad pneumonia that like if flu and I have followed these kids with flu and I know that when you follow them up, they seem to do fine, right? They're not on oxygen. They don't have shortness of breath. They don't, um, you know, the, um, with the COVID, um, some of them have, have follow-up CT scans like the adults, ground glass, shortness of breath, all this stuff. I have, I've been doing flu research since, since 2007. I have not seen all of that, um, even when somebody has a bad uh, influenza pneumonia compared to this, which is more similar to what you see in the adult, in the adult population. Um, so there's something about this virus that seems to linger compared to um, the the flu and some of the other viruses that we usually study. So in comparison to the long haulers that, the long haulers that we see in the adult world, um, certainly with the advent from June uh, to present with use of dexamethasone, I'd be curious to see when um, dexamethasone is used with acute COVID children, um, 
does your data or your findings thus far demonstrate that these sort of long hauler children who may have not had as severe of a case of some of the long haulers we see in the adult ICU that are lingering for two, three, four weeks in patient, um, but are you seeing things such as new development of reactive airway disease or, or asthma or other related diseases? Are we seeing secondary infections in these populations similar to what we would see also in the adults? See, we don't have the numbers that you have in the adults of all that lung disease. Um, and we have very few intubated patients, okay? So, I mean, the stuff that you guys are reporting with the, the people had severe, severe, severe lung disease, et cetera, um, not that many are intubated, right? I'm talking about people who were on the ward with the pneumonia, mm -hmm. who um, still are having issues um, and shortness of breath and, and going and being followed up by pulmonary and having a lot of stuff that we would not see that kind of thing with just a flu, right? And even in our severe flu in the ICU, most of those people recover and, and don't necessarily, um, some of them do, but, but most of them um, don't necessarily complain of all of these shortness of breath and symptoms like this. So I think that this, the, these symptoms that the adults are complaining of, although we have many fewer because I have this registry and I have this network and we're doing follow-up, I do get all this information. I mean, it's way more than I would expect in my flu um, cohort or I've seen in my flu studies. So there's something about this virus that does, does tend to linger and cause some issues. And these kids weren't as sick as the adults that you're describing. We don't, they don't get intubated as much or they may not even have been on non-invasive, just oxygen on the floor with infiltrates, you know? No, absolutely. I think this is a great segue for Dr. Bullitt to come in and discuss a little bit about um, why children have better clinical outcomes with acute COVID disease or SARS-CoV-2 infection. And then are there similar immunologic findings that we see in children as compared to their adult counterparts? Love to hear your thoughts. Um, so the, what is interesting is that there are uh, certain things that we told that is the reason that the children are uh, less, uh, you know, affected by the um, uh, COVID. And one of the theories where the children have a reduced expression of ACE receptors. And why is this important? Uh, because we told that uh, that spike protein is uh, utilizing the ACE receptor and another uh, protease tempress to enter the cells and infect the cells. Uh, and then there's this uh, famous German paper from last year showed that the nasal epithelial cells of the children had less uh, ACE receptors. Uh, however, that study was uh, from uh, a couple of years ago from actually an asthma group and they showed like less than 10 years old children had less ACE receptors, uh, but uh, uh, the, the adults, when they called adults is greater than 60 years old, they didn't have data for the greater than 60 years old. And then there's a recent study that actually came out this uh, month that showed that uh, from the Betsy Herald group that the, these two important receptors, the ACE receptor and the Tempress 2 uh, gene expression uh, is similar in children and adults. Um, and, uh, and also, um, uh, there is another group that, Zhang group, that showed that actually decreases in the ACE receptors, decreases in the elderly, they call elderly greater than 50 years old, which I don't agree with, and then in that group. Um, so, um, this lower ACE receptor story uh, may not be the case uh, for the differences, the reason for the differences. And also, the patients with underlying uh, diseases such as diabetes uh, who have reduced ACE expression uh, and then the risk of severity is increased. And the other theory was uh, that this anatomical differences, that if you have uh, greater resistance because you have smaller airways, uh, so that, that this may lead to less aerosol particles are deposited in your trachobronchial tree. Uh, but again, this has been refuted because this group the, uh, from uh, uh, Montefiore that showed that when they look at the, the nasal swabs of these uh, patients that they showed uh, less RNA in their uh, nasopharyngeal uh, samples. Uh, and then there was this study from last year again that showed that the greater than five years old, they may have actually higher numbers of uh, uh, RNA detection of the SARS-CoV-2. Uh, 
Uh, and then there's another theory, uh, the cross-reactivity. Uh, in this one, that if the pre-existing immunity to the uh, common coronaviruses uh, may be protecting uh, their children, that's another possibility. Uh, the static group from the La Jolla Institute of Immunology showed that there are a lot of people uh, that have pre-existing immunity to SARS-CoV-2 uh, in an unexposed individuals. These are pre-pandemic antibody levels. Uh, but the, the same group, the peers, is just they showed that this did not differentiate in, uh, between the adults and children. And then uh, in addition, there are other studies showing that even if they are elevated, they are not in protective of the, uh, the severity of the disease. So if we have these differences, so what is, uh, what is uh, protecting children? Uh, so this, I will share this new study uh, from uh, this month uh, and then uh, a couple months ago that this group, uh, they looked at these hospitalized with children with the hospitalized COVID and then adults. Uh, in the first study, they looked at uh, uh, serum levels of the IL-17A and interferon gamma, which is very important in the disease control. And in pediatric patients, they had higher serum levels uh, and then lower serum levels in the adults. And, and the next study of their follow-up study, they also looked at the mesopharyngeal samples and they look at actually the expression of these genes and the proteins. And they show that they have increased interferon signaling in LRP3 inflammasomes, which will be fighting for the immediate innate uh, response. They have, these children had increased interferon IP10, IL-8 and um, IL-1 beta in their uh, mesopharyngeal fluid and compared to less in the adults. And then one theory was that the poor outcome in adults were attributed to the not generalizing, not generating strong, robust T-cell response uh, to virus spike uh, protein. Uh, but they showed that the adults mounted a robust T-cell response. They have actually high neutralizing antibodies and according to some studies even higher, and they have systemic levels of inflammatory cytokines. So, this story is telling us that, um, that uh, maybe the initial vigorous early mucosal immunity by the interferon IL-17A uh, in children initially giving us a robust innate immunity, uh, but preventing for a, a more maladaptive uh, adaptive responses in, in the future. And maybe it's the opposite is the true for the adults that initial delayed and ineffective uh, innate immunity may be leading to more dysregulated adaptive responses. So this is the story uh, the, so far um, about the, uh, what is out there. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. This is really interesting. So um, based off of that and understanding at least some of the descriptive and some functional immunologic um, studies that have at least evaluated uh, the disease in children, um, have there been, and Dr. Randolph, please feel free to jump in, um, have there been any mechanistic evaluations um, in children that have been used with any at least observational therapy trials? If not, obviously randomized control trials haven't been completed, but in any of the work that's been done thus far for children, do we have any insights at least if there are therapeutic targets that have been at least attempted so far in kids? Um, not that I, I mean, Dr. Randolph, would you like to? Oh, you go ahead. I mean, for, so I think it's important first to, to distinguish between acute COVID-19 infection or MIS-C. So um, there's a lot of uh, more known um, about MIS-C, I think, therapies, because um, there's an entire consortium and, and guidelines, et cetera, where the acute COVID-19 is a spectrum of complications in it, in kids like GI and, you know, re the respiratory isn't the same phenotype. Some of them are, but there's so few that fit the adult phenotype of ARDS that it's hard to actually do a therapeutic uh, study. There, in general, I know that the the data that we have show that for the ones that fit that respiratory phenotype in the ICU, they're basically extrapolating from the adult um, patients and giving remdesivir and steroids and et cetera. And early on in the pandemic, they gave hydroxychloroquine, 
Um, a lot, you know, a lot of kids got it, even young kids, even though like, you know, didn't make, you know, but they, they did. And then for Miss C, I mean, every, almost all of them get IVIG and then um, half of them or more get steroids. And then there's some biologic use. And over time, there's more and more steroid use. And when you should do steroids, et cetera, is a whole different thing. And, and what are you treating? So I think it all depends, like, what phenotype are you treating of the complication? Um, and then there's this group that's kind of in between the two, you know, and they basically have acute COVID. But as you know, it's a misses um, like a heterogeneous definition that covers ARDS with multi-organ, uh, you know, involvement like cardiac or any other and inflammation, which are, are mods, you know, patients with, with pediatric ARDS. And so they get categorized as Miss C, right? And we we just published this paper in JAMA February 24th about that, basically showing what distinguishes the two groups and showing that, um, that uh, you know, probably there's overlap there. And these are just acute COVID patients, our sickest of the sick PARDS patient, you know, pediatric ARDS patients with multi-organ involvement and inflammation, and they, they are not necessarily post-infectious, they're infectious, they're what you see in the adults with the worst of the outcomes, right? So, um, and so that was our point of that paper and what really differentiated there. Um, how do you distinguish the two? And it's near impossible, honestly, because the definition for Miss C is very vague. And, um, and we're not looking at you know, viral load and all these other things that, um, so, um, so anyways, you know, I think it's so important, like what phenotype are we treating and how do we deal with these patients that are in the middle? And then we also have had these patients that were acute, you know, infection in the lung, and then they morph into this, you know, multi-organ post it's not even post-infectious, they're still infected, but multi-organ involvement with the heart and other organs that just went on and on with inflammation and fever. And, and some of us, and, and I think in adults that's been described in young adults where they were getting better and you might have taken care of some of those, Ken, they were had lung disease, they were getting better and then they just fell apart. And, uh, and now I think the CDC is struggling with how you die you categorize Miss A or these, these patients who are sick that then got better than worse or these, you know, um, patients in the outpatient that never had anything like in the children, these were mostly previously healthy kids didn't have a, anything. And, but, but um, are, are, were PCR positive a month ago or antibody positive now with an exposure and now come up with cardiovascular involvement. And the adults, I think they're categorizing at more of these kids, patients that had lung disease, they were younger, they got better, and then they just fell apart, you know? So I think this is important because these are kind of our ARDS patients, you know? This is our bread and butter um, type of patients for, the, for lung disease that we treat and manage. So I appreciate the, the, the mentioning now of Missy. I'm going to take a step back just for the audience. If you wouldn't mind, take us through how we came to this concept of Missy and how one can differentiate it now clinically as best against acute COVID. And then are there specific clinical findings in Missy that are very different than acute COVID? And then the final question is, and this is more of that million dollar question, is this a new entity? Why, why this virus? Have you not seen it in flu or have we not seen it in RSV or other viruses? So just if we could take that step back, Dr. Randolph, could you just take us through at least how we arrived to that this is, there, there is this entity in MISC or MISC or PIMS and, and what, what a clinician is to look for to be able to effectively diagnose this and then understand at least what the potential consequences are of this syndrome? Yes. Well, um, let me just show a, just a couple of slides, I mean, um, that, that might um, just show sort of how heterogeneous the diagnosis is. Um, 
So, you know, first of all, let's just talk about the fact that this was one year ago, right? It's now April 29th. This whole thing came up one year ago. Um, it came up because in April, mid-April, in Italy, London, and then New York City, they described these children with shock, right? A set of like eight tiny numbers that presented with shock, et cetera, a month after Missy. In general, children were very minimally affected by COVID early in the pandemic when everything was now coming um, into the UK and, and Europe and, and the US. But then, the, then there was these case reports. So they came up May 15th, this worldwide alert. There was the PIMS-TS, right? They call it Pediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Syndrome associated with SARS-CoV-2, PIMS-TS in Europe, um, MIS-C, and then MIS-C in, um, in WHO. Right. So um, and then, you know, they had these Kawasaki disease features, so, you know, as a pediatrician, you think Kawasaki disease features. Whoa. What about the coronary arteries? Right. Because, you know, these are kids who basically had persistent fever and um, and then a lot of them had coronary artery diseases, which is what you can, are concerned about, which is why all of them were getting IVIG. Right. We're treating the heart here. That's why we're giving them all IVIG. And then steroids, we're treating them like Kawasaki disease, right? And we published this early on, you know, putting a thing together June, very early on in June. And, um, you know, here's the diagnosis. Here's the diagnosis. Very, very vague. Now, just to say, although this, this has a spectrum and over time, as they mandated this to be a publicly reportable um, disease, um, less and less sick kids got reported, right? Because early on, when we made this report, most of these patients had four to five organ systems involved. Most of these patients had multiple, multiple biomarkers of inflammation. The, the average minimal duration of fever was three days. And, um, you know, these were six, six, six patients, 80% in the ICU, 50% in shock, um, and 10% developed coronary artery aneurysms. Now, we thought we were seeing Kawasaki disease. We got, everybody got very, very, very scared that we were seeing a vasculitis. So we, people were hammering, hammering at this with uh, steroids and, and with um, IVIG. And these were bigger kids, right? Because Kawasaki disease, you hardly ever see shock. 50% of these kids had shock and um, steroids, right? So, but what the case is that in our JAMA paper from February, we, we followed all these kids out. And uh, most of this uh, coronary artery disease and the, the poor function on echocardiogram was very short-lived. Where in Kawasaki disease, the coronary aneurysms are, are more persistent. This is, becomes a lifelong problem. So it's, and there's other reasons to think that it's not exactly Kawasaki disease, right? I mean, we did see this distribution and whatever reason, why is this happening in this middle-aged child distribution and previously healthy kids? Um, you know, so, you know, there's, there's these concerns, but I, you know, the more we looked at this over time and looked at it compared to acute COVID-19 in our, in our JAMA paper that we later published, we saw all this overlap in some of these patients. It's hard to tell. Um, some of them do meet criteria for acute COVID-19. So anyways, I think that um, it's a brand new, very heterogeneous disease. And as you start public health reporting, you get a broader spectrum, including kids that are um, barely meet the criteria that, that we've all seen those kind of kids in our ICUs. And so I think it's time to revisit, honestly, the, um, you know, this diagnosis and, and think because 
Um, and as we get further into it, and as people get vaccinated and kids get vaccinated, things are going to change. And how are we going to deal with that? Everybody's going to have antibodies. Right. Right. So how are we going to deal with that? I mean, I can tell you with flu. Yes, I have kids who came in with flu that only had chalk. In my, I mean, pick flu studies, we have a decent number of those, not huge, but quite a few. I mean, it can cause a myocarditis. Um, and, but, but th this was definitely, um, I don't want to minimize because there's definitely, there's definitely patients who clearly, clearly meet the criteria. There's something there that, oh my goodness, and you better pay attention because they can get super, super sick and they can get um, arrhythmias and I mean, they can die. They can have arrests, all kinds of complications. But when you start having this brought up a criteria and saying that every single patient needs to be reported, you get this spectrum. And then you start seeing overlap with a lot of our just bread and butter stuff, you know? No, absolutely. Dr. Bullitt, if you wouldn't mind piggybacking on that and just tell us a little bit about the MI, the MIS-C uh, immunologic understandings, at least which, with, which has been reported thus far. I'm just gonna uh, share it uh, here um, because I'm trying to um, summarize the, what is out there. So uh, I'm just gonna try to summarize the whole, what is out there. Um, for an explanation, possible explanation, etiologies in one, and then maybe like an immunopathology slide too. So one of the, these hypotheses are not mutually exclusive. One of the hypotheses being is a, a post-infectious autoimmune response from cross-reactivity between viral antigens and host antigens. Other possibility is a, like a dysregulated immune response to an ongoing viral replication. There's an unrecognized viral reservoir um, or a response to the superantigen. And, in the, and then maybe like with the mimicking the adults that they are finding uh, uh, RNA um, data in two, three months after the uh, infection and the, in the gut epithelium and the biopsies. Uh, so, and then other possibilities maybe as a, a genetic predisposition. So what are the studies that supporting this as, as a post-infectious autoimmune diseases that they have, these patients have high levels of neutralizing antibody IgG and IgA, but lower IgM levels. Uh, and this is uh, Dr. Randolph's study actually here. And then and the lower viral load, meaning that the high CT count, uh, but the lower viral load is the MIC versus the acute COVID. Uh, and then no detectable levels of viral RNA. So that this is not an acute infection, it is a, uh, it is a, uh, uh, post-infectious phenomena. And then there are other studies that showing that there is specific autoantibodies targeting certain tissue, uh, like anti-endoglin and MEP kinase and anti-JOA and anti -la. These are the, these are, uh, uh, these are the possibility of the autoantibodies, but these studies are very small. Some of the studies with an N of like, you know, three or six. So we don't know that if this is the um, reason for MISC or is it because of the, uh, the immune response that we are seeing this uh, autoantibody. Um, and the other possibility is that uh, the in, uh, inability to eradicate uh, infection, the persistent infection, virus is gone, but, uh, uh, but there's a parts of the virus is lingering. Uh, uh, and this may be due to the poor initial response uh, what is supporting this is that that the Spiceberg group showed that there's neutralizing, reduced neutralizing antibodies, and maybe that led to an inc incomplete eradication. But there are other studies showing that that may not be the case that they have um, equal uh, uh, okay number of the, you know the neutralizing antibodies. And and uh, other interesting fact in this group is that when you look at the convalescent adult patients. The plasma blasts return to the normal level after two, three weeks, three, four weeks. But in this MIAC group, we are seeing that they are still elevated. And this is pointing out to a more of a dysregulated BNT cell response. Um, and maybe that is uh, driving the autoantibodies and the IgGs uh, towards the uh, endothelial cells. 
And then the last one is the possibility of um, possibility of the superantigen that I will talk about, uh, and then the possibility of the genetic predisposition. Uh, to date, majority of the children affected with MISD are they are Hispanic, Latino, or non-Hispanic Black ethnicity, while Asian children are not affected. So there is a hint in the, one of the small studies that there could be some HLA genotyping of these patients demonstrating uh, a T cell receptor be like uh, expansion. There's a, like a shared uh, HLA uh, class one allows in that uh, study. I think Dr. Amanda will talk a bit more about that. Um, so uh, when we look at the immunopathology of this, so that there is the, there are innate immunities involved, adaptive immunities involved, and then all the kids with MISCs pretty much has lymphopenia. And it's probably a post-viral activation cell death or chemotaxis. I'm not going to go over to every single cytokine in this picture. It's a nice picture from Lucas' uh, group that in the innate immunity that you have increased alarmants, there is decreased uh, antigen-presenting cell uh, markers, uh, and there are CRP, increased CRP, and ferritin, increased cytokines, depending on which paper you are reading in which part of the disease, since the disease is so dynamic, as Dr. Randolph said, at, at which time point you are getting your information, that at, at different cytokine levels is elevated for different uh, patient groups, more like in IL-10 and TNF-alpha, more in that MASD versus the acute COVID versus the total CD25s, IL-18s, and CXLs, and MAS and uh, uh, HLH group. Um, and then when you look at the uh, um, uh, adaptive immune side, that there is lymphopenia, there is decreased CD4 and CD8 cells. Um, although there is decrease in the B cells, there is a proliferation of the uh, plasma blasts, uh, which is probably translating as increased IgG1 and IgG3, which is autoantibodies towards endothelial cells and other tissues with increased E-selectin and which is translating to the clinician as increased troponin and increased BNP. Um, and, uh, and, and lastly, that this, the superantigen story, this is interesting actually, uh, because if I just like uh, go over the slide two seconds that the, the SARS-CoV uh, uh, utilizes the ACE receptor, uh, with the temperis, uh, and then the temperis uh, uh, cleaves them to S1 and S2 trimer. So what they find, the RDT and Bahar group use a structure-based computational model and identify the superantigen-like motifere in the red, where the actual the S1 and S2, uh, the cleaves. Um, and this, uh, this uh, superantigen-like region, this capable of uh, binding to variable uh, region of the T cell. So, and it causes a non-specific T cell uh, activation proliferation and the release of the cytokines. But the interesting part is that the superantigen-like motif here that you are seeing is, uh, has remarkable similarities uh, to the staphylococcal enterotoxin B um, superantigen. And we all know that the superantigens are uh, highly potent T cell activators and exposing to that will cause um, non-specific T cell proliferation, activation of the T cells, uh, so this is a possibility that, uh, that this response is due to these superantigen-like motif that only SARS-CoV-2 has. Uh, and in MISC patients, um, uh, that this, this uh, T-cell receptor uh, is shown that to be expanding. There's a, like a T-cell receptor, better variable gene expansion. And more severe the cases that they are seeing this expansion in these kids. And then this may also explain the efficacy of the IVIG because there may be uh, the uh, anti-staph enterotoxin activity present in the IVIG preparations, which antibody in the IVIG neutralizes staph enterotoxin, which cross-reacts with the SARS-CoV-2. Um, so this, uh, this TCR report you're doing, which is uh, correlating with the superantigen, uh, actually shown with another group. Again, this is another paper came in, the two papers came out this uh, month from the, you know, the, and they are, they are showing the similar information with uh, 
these T cell receptor uh, screwing uh, and uh, maybe uh, causing to this um, uh, dysregulation of the T cells and the B cells. So we don't, we are learning. We don't know this is a very dynamic disease, and we only have there. There, this is a very rare disease. So we don't have uh, absolute information, but there are overlapping stories, and the overlapping stories are that possibly post-infectious and autoimmune, and that there's a dysregulated immune response, maybe due to viral reservoirs that maybe is overlapping with the long COVID in adults. Uh, there is lymphopenia, superantigen story, and then this dysregulation may be leading to autoantibodies, and maybe some genetic predisposition. This is what is out there so far. Thank you. No, this is outstanding. So I think this brings us to a point where we've got a couple minutes le left, but I think it highlights, a, at least to me, a couple of different points, and uh, I'll ask a couple of questions from the panel. But one is, is that, um, at least in my experience, is many of these children with MIS-C get better without any therapies at all. And there's a concern, perhaps, that some of these therapies, such as giving a corticosteroid for a patient who's got altered CD4, CD8 uh, depletion or has T-cell exhaustion, then in fact, you could be potentially um, uh, leading towards the development of secondary infections, or if you're using immunomodulating um, agents such as tocilizumab or, or anakinra, um, that may or may not have a mechanistic uh, specific causal pathway, um, that there may be deleterious effects. And so um, I think it beckons the bigger question, which is in children, um, the numbers have been small. We've based a lot of things off of really well-intentioned, thoughtful people coming into groups of making expert opinion, but that opinion may not be necessarily born out of mechanistic understandings, or at least what we, it is known up to this point. Um, should we be treating children with MIS-C with therapies like corticosteroids or immunomodulating uh, agents or, or even IVIG? Um, or is this really a self-limiting disease and we should only reserve these for the most severe of cases? I think only as uh, 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 Dr. Randolph's data uh, suggests that like, you know, the two thirds of these patients are requiring ICU and 50% is requiring pressors. Uh, I think that uh, I really uh, like the ACRs, uh, American College of Rheumatology version to approach. Uh, in that one, I think the first line is IVIG, which I, uh, I, I agree because of the possibility that we just like discussed. Uh, but the, the, the steroids, and the, they are starting with the low-dose steroids, even. So the, if the child is not responding to IVIG, you have a patient with a high BNP, high troponins, they're in shock, they have a couple of pressors. So I think that giving that child the IVIG is uh, reasonable with this data. Uh, but uh, that going to the high-dose steroids, if the patient is not responding to IVIG, they are recommending a, a stepwise slow approach. Uh, and then most of the immunologists that we are talking about that more leaning towards the IVIG rather than the, the steroids. So the one to two milligram per kilo of the solimedrol, and if there is no response, and then there's a division that instead of going to 20, 30 per kilo of the steroids versus the IL-1 inhibitors like anakinra. Um, most people are shying away from the IL-6, the reason IL-6 inhibitors, the, the reason being that they may be actually there's some bursting with the IL-6 inhibitors in the Kawasaki data. So um, I, I kind of like, and even for the anticoagulation stuff that I just, uh, in our practice, that following the ACR version too, uh, that makes sense because of the experience, the years of experience. But um, it's, again, it's a very, uh, there's only 3,000 children with, uh, with this disease. So Dr. Randolph, I know you've got a comment on this. No, I think that this is the thing, I agree with Yanka, this is a very heterogeneous disease. Um, I think that, that um, if we don't behave consistently, we're not going to be able to track and look at outcomes, you know, and I think that's why these ACR guidelines are very helpful for people to, to have at least a consistent approach. And I will say that it's like all these diseases that you're treating your one in, in intensive care and infections, you're treating the one patient that got away that, that did poorly by, by over treating tend to save that one from having that terrible outcome. And we are seeing some bad outcomes in these kids. There's kids with permanent heart block. These kids have heart rates of 40. 
Like, what's that about after the whole thing? Something's going on with the heart here. And I think until we know more, and there's this study called music that, that is uh, following up these kids at, at like at least 30 centers, including a lot of our centers that, that we need to know that they're scarring of the heart. What's going on? Because there's some bad um, complications here. And, um, and these bradycardia that's persistent block, um, all kinds of things that, that, and then there's people reporting. That's why they're being so aggressive. That's not, there's just a few that break through, you treat them, you stop, and then they come back even sicker. So that's why they're doing treating everybody. If we knew who to treat and not treat and what this was and had a better diagnostic criteria, I totally agree. And knew what was driving it and knew, you know, I, then, then we'd be better off. But right now, I think people are going to have to over-treat to, to prevent these bad ones from happening. That makes sense. So Dr. Zicheng, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to, to comment. And I think what I'll ask the panel to do after that is just uh, let us know what you think where the field should go with uh, children and COVID and, 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 uh, and Missy and uh, any other parting comments you might have for our audience. But Dr. Zicheng, you're next. Um, and I just want to, again, Dr. Randolph, thank you, because you're saying such nice things that I'm just able to kind of segue into the, um, to what I was going to comment on is, you know, kind of talking about this treating the one that got away. And I, you know, this is where my sort of transition from ICU into primary care, when we kind of zoom out, you know, the recent number is that 40,000 children have lost a parent to COVID and which is a, an, a number I can't even wrap my head around, which, um, you know, the, in the additional stressors of being away from their friends, um, having the anxiety of especially parents who are healthcare workers or who are essential workers and don't have the opportunity to work from home. Um, you know, the, the um, stress levels in these children is extremely high. And to say that there will not be, um, there will not have to be societal changes to help these children, um, whether it's, you know, child survivor benefits or increased um, support for counseling, um, availability of therapists in schools, to, to think that those things, um, you know, we'll be able to move forward without those things happening. You know, I think that that is, is something that really as a society, we have to look at in order to maintain the health of all the children, um, you know, not just these, the, the, you know, the handful in the ICU we need to treat, but we, the, also from a societal standpoint, it's uh, important. I think that's a fantastic point, because if you look at the numbers, that's going to be the greatest impacted by this COVID pandemic is certainly the, the, the group that you delineated. I think it's a phenomenal idea. And I think it's certainly an area that we need to at least refine as a medical community of what's the best approach moving forward to help those children that are going to be at risk for years to come of PTSD, depression, and a whole host of other mental disorders and illnesses that we certainly need to find ways, I think, to address it and address it soon. I think that probably we're behind the eight ball in at least addressing many of these issues with many of these kids who've lost grandparents or children. Dr. Bullitt, why don't you give your parting words and then we'll go to Dr. Randolph. Uh, parting words is that we need to do uh, more studies, uh, longitudinal studies, uh, and maybe international studies because we are not on this alone. Uh, and then there are a lot of children that is affected. Uh, so I'm just... Um, hoping to collaborate uh, with uh, both the international folks, uh, friends, and uh, go further. Dr. Randolph, what, what else is on your list for how we move forward with this uh, pandemic and with these diseases? So, you know, I think that it's really, really important that everybody pitch in and participate in these funded studies that are going on. The, there's four studies, four or five studies, more than that that are going on to answer questions because we never collect the data. So I think it's really important to, um, that we participate in studies. We need to understand, does the vaccine uh, uh, prevent against MIS-C and acute COVID, right? Is it, prevent, is it gonna prevent MIS-C or are there gonna be, you know, other things, that, vaccine complications that we have to monitor? So I think that there's a lot of, if, if it prevents MIS-C, that would be amazingly great, right? And, um, and then we also need to understand the treatment because 
you know, if these kids have myocarditis, they put them on the myocarditis watch that they can't do anything for three months and then they lose a lot of muscle. But then on top of that, you throw on all these steroids and these kids often get weeks of steroids. Do we need that? How much do we, kids, one thing you're doing the acute thing and getting them out of it, but then how much do we really need to, to add on to that? Because that could have some consequences. So, I mean, there's so many questions here and the outcomes of these kids and what's happening to their heart. And then there's, there's just the acute COVID and the neural complications and everything. And then, you know, as Janine said about, you know, just the effects on these kids in general, I mean, oh dear, you know, we, the, the, the social and societal effects and, and those kids who do get sick have a lot of psychiatric effects. These Miss C patients are scared right? Should I get vaccinated? What if I get infected again? What about this? That's shown in that Great Ormond Street um, follow-up study that was just published. I mean, the, the anxiety about what happens to me now about in these kids and how we support them and figure that out. We don't know. We have to figure that out. You know, are they at risk if they get infected again? Are they going to get sick again? So because with the new variant and then these new variants are, are something that we we all have to be aware of and uh, and not let our guard down. And also, we can't think about what happened in in um, April of 2020 and last year and what's going to happen this year. Don't it could be a totally different world. We have the unprotected population now. Right. It's mostly kids. So uh, we could be the ones, if the things change, we could be the, the patient population that gets sick. So we got to be aware of that. And we don't have any treatments. And we're not prepared, as usual. So anyways, I, those are my parting comments. No, those are great. If uh, those that are watching this webinar would like to participate in one of your many studies, is there a website that they should uh, visit? Yes, they can go to overcomecovid.org would be one, um, or pickflu.org, both of those then lead them to getting to our um, network, you know, or just just email me, um, you know, which I'm not that hard to find, but uh, you can go through the website as well. Um, and and yes, we, we love to have new people participate of new sites. Um, we have a lot of sites, but, but everybody needs to pitch in to answer these questions. Excellent point. And thank the three of you today for being part of this panel. For those today that uh, are watching, um, first and foremost, our friends from India and from other locations that are having huge surges, please know that we're thinking of you and feel free to reach out to any of us if you at least need some um, insights from our experiences. We're always certain most of us are always available by email and happy to participate at least in providing some consultation when needed. Um, we're all in this together, as Dr. Randolph mentioned. And with that, I hope that we continue to, to try to understand the disease. Um, I hope we start to stamp out the disease and I hope we start to deal with some of the consequences of this horrible, tragic pandemic. With that, I appreciate everyone's time and thank you for joining us today.